All right. What do you want to talk about this morning? Oh, I guess that's my job, isn't it? All right. I'll see what I can do. Um, last night, um, Mary and I were having a spotted dinner, and um, I was getting ready to, just getting ready to go upstairs and start working on the message for this morning. It was 8.30 in the evening, and I get a text from Eliza telling me that uh, Terry Cowboy had to go back into ICU and that uh, it, it looked like it was possible that last night was going to be his last night. Um, it isn't, as far as I understand. I, it sounds like I got a text from Eliza this morning. But she asked if I could come over there. And uh, the family was all there and, and talk. And, of course, so the first thing that goes through my mind is, how am I going to get this message done? i got to get this stuff done, you know? And so there's that, that initial, you know, kind of... Uh, dissonance and, and resistance. And then the next thought, was, well, of course i got to be there. I mean, good Lord. If you don't know Cowboy, um, he's been with us, God, what, eight years, nine years? He, for the most, most of the, uh, the, the length of time, actually the, the effect is going to be 12 on the 20th. So, um, but Terry's been here at least eight of those years and really active. And uh, if you don't know Terry, he is this larger than life. I mean, Cowboy is perfect for him. You know, because he just has this expansiveness to his presence, and um, and so yeah, get into a conversation with him. Make sure you have about forty five minutes at least, uh, because he can talk. And uh, and he was just the the, the most energetic, um, just always wanting to help um, kind of man that you could imagine, and uh, became an institution around here. Between Terry and his cowboy hat and his dog Connie, I mean that was just said the effect, you know, to so many of us. And to see him like this, of course, is really jarring with the, the cancer taking its toll. Uh, but I walked into the room and uh, Tanya, his older, uh, oldest daughter, was there. And uh, three of her children and her husband and Eliza, of course, his wife. And uh, we just started talking and the kids were hungry. So they and the, uh, and the father went down uh, to the cafeteria and uh, I just sat and was talking to Tanya mostly. Uh, Eliza was on the other side of the bed. And it was just one of those moments, you know. She's having a hard time with this. You could see it in her face and, and her, hear it in her voice. And she had the kind of questions that we all have at times like this. You know, why is this happening to my dad? Why is this happening to us? This isn't fair. You know, we, we just the, that, that human cry that comes out of us at times like that. But I was just aware the whole time that I was there. And, and then her sister, Kristen, came in and she brought her younger daughter and um, her husband and then two friends came. And, and so it was, and they said that this is the way it's been for the whole time that he's been hospitalized and, and he's been down, is that there's just been a never-ending stream of people. And that says so much about the relationships and how, how Terry was just a, a hub of you know to these spokes on the wheel uh, of the relationships around him and the relationships that that he garnered and um, to be a part of that was was wonderful um, to just realize that you know I'm one of the spokes on the wheel in Terry's life along with his family and his friends and all these people and to just be there and just to, to talk and and uh, they asked me to pray and we prayed and. And then I left and was up till 2.30 in the morning. So, you know, that's the way it goes. But I think what I walked away with and what I wanted to, to try to convey this morning is just the precious nature of our relationships, the precious nature of, of the people in our lives. And 
we get used to each other. We get familiar with each other. And I guess the familiarity does breed, if not contempt, at least a certain amount of, <laughs> you know, just uh, complacency, I suppose. We don't hold the relationships in, in the kind of awe that they really should occupy in our lives. Relationships are just everything to us. Um, I was reminded of the movie and the book Contact. And I don't know if you've all seen that. The book is by Carl Sagan and uh, the movie was made from the book. But there's a line in that movie, and I actually put it in your um, in your inserts, that just hit me as I was as I was driving home and thinking about all this stuff. And this is at the near the end of the movie where um, the uh, the young astronomer actually meets an alien for the first time. It's about contact with extraterrestrials. Uh, so um, you're going to wonder how in the heck is he tying all this together. Uh, so she meets the alien, but he has taken the form of her father, her father who died when she was young of a heart attack. And after they're having this conversation, at the end of the conversation, he says to her, you're an interesting species, an interesting mix. You're capable of such beautiful dreams and such horrible nightmares. You feel so lost, cut off, so alone, only you're not. See, in all our searching... The only thing we've found that makes the emptiness bearable is each other. And when I first saw that, when I first read that, because that's right off the pen of Carl Sagan, I thought, that can't be right. Come on, that's just invalidating God. That's invalidating the spiritual experience. And and it's invalidating everything I know as a Christian. You know, come on, it's not just each other. There's got to be a lot more than that. Twenty years later... I got a different viewpoint, and that's what I wanted to talk about this morning. You know, 20 years later, I'm becoming convinced. It's all about each other. And not only am I becoming convinced, I'm convinced it was always right there in the red print in my Bible all along. But I wasn't reading it as such. I was reading around it. I was missing certain things. Um, Five years ago... Um, I wrote in a book about this very kind of issue. And last Wednesday, we actually started to talk about it. We hit that part in the book that Frank so, you know, <laughs> sarcastically said that uh, we're about 10 pages from the end. But we're hitting this section that is dealing with these issues. And he is the, he's the reader. He reads uh, the book, and then we all discuss and talk and whatnot. And he read this sentence out of the book, and then he stopped and said, I have no idea what you're talking about there. You know, I'm not even sure this is right. So I wanted to submit it to all of you. And let's see if we can find out whether Frank is happening or not here. What I wrote was and what Frank read, God is the unseen unity. The simplicity that embraces all the diversity, <laughs> all the diversity and complexity we see every day. And Yeshua is showing us how all our relationships are one and the same, flowing both toward and away from that unseen connection. Okay, does that make any sense to you? Not a bit, right? It's okay. Here's what I'm trying to say. Let me read it again. God is the unseen unity, the simplicity that embraces all the diversity and all the complexity that we see in our lives every day. There's an unseen unity at the core of that. And Yeshua, that's the Aramaic name for Jesus, 
is showing us how all our relationships are actually one and the same, flowing both toward and away from that unseen connection. I want you to think about this for a second. Every time that you see light and every time that you feel warmth on our planet, if you think about it and you work it back, it comes from the sun. The sun is the only source of light and warmth for us on this planet that we have. Now, wait a minute. At night, I flip on my switch and I turn on my electric lights. How's that coming from the sun? Well, where does the electricity come from, do you think? Okay, you got a power plant. It's burning coal. Where does the coal come from? The coal comes from the thermodynamic you know, activities over how many years? That is all driven by the sun's power. Okay, maybe the power plant is, is hydroelectric. So the river is flowing through. It's flowing over the dam. Well, what drives the streams? We just drove out to Palm Desert, Marion and I, on Friday and watched all of those windmills going about in the Coachella Valley. What drives the wind? You know, the warmth, geothermal activity. Whatever it is, if you really drive it back, Everything that we have, all the fuel that we have, all the sources of power that we have are driven by the sun. The sun is the only source of all of that in our solar system. And so where we see it in all its complexity, in all the different ways that it manifests and plays out in our lives, if you pull it back, it's all back to the sun. Likewise, wherever you see loving behavior, wherever you see connection and relationship, if you drive it back, it's all coming to God. God is the sole source of what we call love. God is the sole source of what we call unity and connection. There is no other. So when we see it played out in our lives and all the different you know, permutations, all the different complexity and all the different ways that it can play out, really it's just one thing. It's one source. The image that came to mind on Wednesday when I was trying to rebut Frank was that, you know, you put your face right up against a tree and you say, I'm going to really love this leaf. This leaf is beautiful. I love this leaf. As if it's the only thing that there is. But if you pull back out, you see that the leaf is inextricably connected to the entire tree. I'm going to love this person right there. I'm going to love this person. But if we pull out and we see how every person is interconnected by the single source of unity, we start to see that is there really any difference between any of our relationships? Well, of course they feel different. And of course there's different levels of intimacy that we have. But when it comes right down to it, every relationship is equally connected to every other relationship because every person is equally connected to the unseen unity at the core of things. We really are connected. There really is this, this blanket that, that covers everything and connects it in a way that we can't see. And this is what we need to start to understand. If we can get there, if we can start to see the unseen unity at the, at the, at the source of everything, we're going to start to understand life in a different way. It's going to be harder for us to get really complacent about our relationships. It's going to get more and more difficult for us to judge relationships into different significance categories. This one's significant. This one is not. This one I can, I can hold at bay. This is an us and them situation. Because we start to see a commonness 
to everybody that changes the nature of the way that we relate in general. How truly every face that is in front of us at any given moment can be the most important person in our lives if we see that that relationship has the same qualities as all our relationships. Continuing on in, in, in this passage from the fifth way, in this life, the quality of heavenly relationships, the quality of heavenly relationships, spiritual relationships, unseen relationships, is defined by the quality of earthly ones, physical ones, ones we can see. When Yeshua tells us to leave our rituals at the altar and first go fix a broken human relationship, when he says, what we do to the least of these around us, we do to him, he is saying that when we tend to the relationships among us and in our midst, we are at the same time tending to our relationship within. Think about that. You come and you bring your gift to the temple. You can bring it to the altar. You're going to do your ritual duty for your religion, for your community, for your people. He says that is meaningless if you are trailing behind you a broken relationship that you haven't fixed, that you're unwilling to fix, possibly. This means nothing. How do we love God directly? We think it's through church. We think it's through religion. We think it's through prayer and worship, the things that we do. But Jesus is saying there's something deeper than that. This true worship, this true relationship with God is going to be reflected and lived out in a way that maybe we haven't fully considered. Or as John writes in his first letter, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And if James is right, that faith without works is dead, then he and John, as bluntly as possible, are telling us that our love for God is only as real as our love for each other. You see how this works? The love for God must play out in the relationships all around us or it really doesn't exist at all. They're trying to get this across to us. They're trying to show us, as again, bluntly as possible, you need to consider the oneness of all of our relationships. Again, from John's first letter, God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. So what about Jesus? Do you think Jesus concurs here? you think Jesus agrees with all this? Yeah. Let's take a look at what Jesus said was the greatest commandment. Now, that should be a pretty good clue, don't you think? If he's asked, what's the greatest commandment? All right. What's he going to say? Take a look at uh, Matthew 22, starting at verse 36. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment of the law? He's asked this outright in the open marketplace. And Jesus replies, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And, caveat, pay attention, the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Take a look what Jesus is doing here. 
First thing he says is love God, of course. Love God with everything that is in you, every part of your being. Love God. But there is another part of this that is exactly the same. Loving your neighbor as you love yourself is just like that. He's equating these two things. And then he goes and says, these are really all that you need to know. You know, take all of the law, all the prophets. That, that's Jewish code for all the rest of their scriptures, divided into three sections. So the law and the prophets and the writings. He's saying all of that that we use to define our way of life boils down to these two commandments. Everything else is commentary. That is a huge statement. Huge And then look what he says at John 13. I give you a new commandment. So first he has the greatest commandment. And then at the Last Supper, just before he goes to the cross, he says, I've got a new commandment for you. And what is that? Love one another as I have loved you. So also you should love one another. That's it. Love one another. But love them as I have loved you. How has he loved them? He's loved them with complete abandon. He's loved them with complete connection, with a willingness to submit and subsume his own personhood into them. What was the washing of feet about, if not to graphically show the nature of the relationship that Jesus had with his friends? He would give everything. He lived to serve them. Even though he was his master, he would kneel before them with a towel wrapped around him and do this most heinous of jobs within Jewish culture. This is Jesus showing us. And then to put an even finer point on it at Matthew 25 at verse 37, the righteous will answer him. This is a scene from the, uh, what's usually called final judgment. You know, the people coming to, to God at the, at the white throne. The righteous will answer Jesus because he's already said, Hey, come on in. <laughs> And they say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Because Jesus said, when I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was cold, you, know, you warmed me. When I was hungry, you fed me. And they say, when did we see all this? When did we see you hungry? When did we feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothes you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, Truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. The least of these are equal to Jesus. Jesus is equal to Father. As I always like to say, if A equals B and B equals C, A equals C. The least of these, Jesus is saying, is exactly the same as me. And I and the Father are one. I am exactly the same as Father. All these relationships that you see as different, all these relationships that you value differently and feel about differently are actually just manifestations of one relationship, one thing, because there's only one source of unity in all of creation, in everything that is. And when you tap into it at any point, at any leaf on that tree, you're tapping into the life of the whole system. It can't be any other way. But we don't see it, and so we stay outside of that. We don't experience that kind of unity, that kind of connection. Jesus is saying, come on in. Experience this. Once you know your Father, then you can live in accordance with that kind of connection, with that kind of unity. And if you don't live like this, then you just don't know your Father yet. 
which is what he's going to say to the goats here in a couple of you know, verses later. It's like they thought they knew him. They were doing the things that they thought they were supposed to do. But he says, I don't know you. They didn't tap into this kind of connection, this kind of unity. They didn't learn to value relationships in this way. Jesus is doing something so singular here. He sees no difference functionally between all of us and him. No difference. That's amazing. And we're going to love Jesus by loving each other. And loving Jesus is loving the Father. So we love the Father by loving each other. And there's really no other way to do it. This is what Jesus is trying to get across to us. And why is all this important? Because it's really hard to do. (laughs) How hard is it to do this? Anybody have the experience that human relationships are a bit difficult? Yeah? Just just a little bit? (laughs) Oh my gosh. Relationships are so hard. Why? Well, there's there's an old saying, right? The whole world is crazy except you and me, and I'm not so sure about you. (laughs) You ever heard that one before? It's tough out there. It's tough to find reliable people. It's tough to find people that think the way that you do and and, and see the world the way that you do and and actually show up when they're supposed to show up and pay their bills when they're supposed to pay their bills. And we're trying to have relationships with these people. We're trying to see them as part of the Godhead. And they dented your car and they didn't leave a note and they didn't pay their, their, you know, their bill back to you. And all the things that people do to each other from the smallest to the most heinous. And we're supposed to see this as all part of the same thing. How in the world do we do that? This is really hard to do. But Jesus keeps coming back to this point and pounding it over and over again. The highest form of love is love of the enemy the one that you don't see eye to eye with, the one who hit and run you. Can we love that person? Because it's real easy to love the one who loves you back. It's real easy to love the one that can give you something in return. But how about the rest? How can we see this? How can we go through this? So in the face of that difficulty, you know, it's a lot easier just to love God. All neat and tidy and abstract and unseen. Doesn't leave a mess in your kitchen, you know? I'm going to love God directly. I'm going to pray. I'm going to worship. I'm going to, and I can keep it all really neat and clean. These abstract concepts of God that I have devised in myself make it easy for me to love God because I've decided what he's going to look like and how he's going to function in my life. That's not always true. Sometimes something has been imported to us and we don't like it as much. But if we're going to love God, we can do it from a distance. We can do it from a neat, air-conditioned row. We don't have to get into the messy, bloody, sweaty streets and actually live out a relationship. And so it's antiseptic. It's clean. None of the mess. Right? And because of the heartbreak of human relationships that we have all experienced that have made it so hard for us to get back up on the horse and do it again. This is why Jesus is so strident. keeps coming back with these huge, huge images and metaphors and ways of trying to get this across. And then we have James and John picking up the banner and trying to tell us the same thing. It's a lot easier to love God directly, we think. Unless, of course, we're blaming God for the human heartbreaks, which also happens. Jesus is saying, 
that we literally don't love God directly. We love God by loving each other. And John is saying, if we can't love the ones that we can see, how in the world do you think that you're going to love the one that you can't see? We're just kidding ourselves. Coming back to the, the fifth way passage. If you find yourself wondering how you're doing with God, about the quality of your relationship with God, just take a look at the quality of your relationships with those closest to you, those whose toothbrushes hang next to yours. The amount of stress and anxiety and anger and resentment, frustration, jealousy, envy in your life directly measure your fear. They're all manifestations of fear. And it's always fear that breaks down relationship, forcing us into strategies that treat others as object and expose our distrust of God's presence and promise. Our relationship with God is realized in relationship with each other. And our love for each other leads inevitably back to the God who loved us first. But our heartbreak gets in the way, doesn't it? It's hard for us to see that, and so we split the two. I can't do this yet. This hurts too much, so I'm going to do this over here. But what all of our evangelists and Jesus are telling us is that you can't have one without the other. These relationships are precious, even though they're difficult. This is where we need to go if we really want to go where Jesus is leading us. Ironically, because we fear so much, our fear keeps us from what we're actually after in life. The actual meaning and purpose that would give us the sense of fulfillment, give us a sense of contentment that we're all craving in life is what we're shelving ourselves off from if we can't get where they're trying to bring us right now. And I think in a very real way, and why not, we're afraid of really deep, full connection completely transparent connection where we have nothing left to hide, where we are flayed open. That's terrifying. Certainly to do with other people, but but also with God. There's something about the nature of this radical unity that Jesus is trying to get across to us that scares the heck out of us. And it is radical. It does cut away all of the chaff, it cuts right to the bone of what we think our relationships are about. Let's take a look at one more passage. And this one I know we've talked about before, but it's always so striking to me at Matthew 22, verse 29. This is where the Sadducees have come and tried to trap Jesus by giving him a scenario where a woman marries seven brothers according to Hebraic law. And so the question to him is, whose wife will she be in the Olam Haba, in the, in the world to come. And of course, since the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection and didn't necessarily believe in a discernible afterlife anyway, because they only adhered to the first five books, the Torah, uh, which doesn't speak about one, they were just trying to set him up and to ridicule him. But Jesus comes right back and says to them, you are mistaken, not understanding the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Wow. You know, the the scriptures talk so little about the next life because Jews don't talk about the next life. They're fully focused here. But every once in a while, we get these little glimpses, these little clues. What is this telling us? There's not going to be any marriage in heaven. 
Well, then, you know, those of you who spent 40, 50, 60 years in marriage, what happens in the next life? All of a sudden, poof, it's gone. Isn't that kind of unsettling? Think about it. If we don't marry in heaven, that means we don't pair off in heaven. We don't have significant others. We don't have best friends. We don't have close confidants that keep all our secrets, you know, in in just this little safe cocoon. In fact, we don't have any secrets. What would life look like if there wasn't a hierarchy of intimacy the way we experience as human beings every day of our lives? That seems somehow subhuman, doesn't it? It just seems so alien. I mean, truthfully, do you really want to go to heaven if heaven looks like that? You're all saying, yeah, but... The truth is, it's so jarring to think about it that way. To think about the fact that we're not going to be paired off. But what is going on? What is Jesus really trying to tell us? He's trying to tell us that in Olamaba, in the next world, the need for these relationships is just going to fall away because we will be connected to that source in a way that we cannot see right now. Paul said, we see through the glass darkly, then face to face. There's going to be a different quality of being able to see the unseen, I guess. A way of of experiencing, acknowledging, living the complete unity of God in a way that we won't need anything else. Now, C.S. Lewis... (laughs) had a great way of, of putting this. And, he, and in talking about marriage, of course, he's talking about sexuality as well and, and the, the need for sexual relationships for human beings. But in, in face of this scripture where there's not going to be marriage, there's not going to be sexuality, what the heck? What do we do? Listen how he, uh, he puts this in his book called Miracles. The letter and spirit of scripture and of all Christianity forbid us to suppose that life in the new creation will be a sexual life. And this reduces our imagination to the withering alternatives either of bodies which are hardly recognizable as human bodies at all, or else of a perpetual fast. And regards the fast, I think our present outlook might be like that of a small boy who on being told that the sexual act was the highest bodily pleasure should immediately ask whether you're eating chocolates at the same time. You get where he's going with this? On receiving the answer, no, he might regard absence of chocolates as the chief characteristic of sexuality. In vain, you would tell him that the reason why lovers in their raptures don't bother about chocolates is that they have something better to think of. The boy knows chocolate. He does not know the positive thing that excludes it. We are in the same position. We know the sexual life, but we don't know, except in glimpses, the other thing which in heaven will leave no room for it. It's hard for us. It's impossible for us to imagine what could be better than our intimate relationships, our best friends, our husbands, our wives, our confidants. But something better will be. Whatever we think we need in this life is only defined by our limited experience. If we had more experience, we would see that something supersedes it. Something comes in. And not waiting for the next life, just living this one. Is there a way that we can 
turn that corner and see that even though this seems to violate what I like about people and what I like about relationships, but start to see something that supersedes that resistance in us that allows us to move forward into a deeper relationship. The truth of the matter is that in God's presence, if we are truly in God's presence, there is no felt need. To be in God's presence is unfelt need. How could it be otherwise? We're in the presence of absolute unity. We are in the presence of love itself. And sometimes I hear people talk about when you go to that great white throne judgment that you're going to have a real played of all the things that you did wrong in life and they're going to play that out for everybody and you're going to be ashamed. Are you kidding me? You're standing in the presence of love and unity itself. What do you think you're going to feel? Love and unity. What else exists? If we are truly in the presence of God, if we have allowed ourselves to be in God's presence, there will be no felt need. I put a blog out last last uh, week uh, called "If You Want Your Dog," and <laughs> it was about uh, me talking to another cancer patient several years ago, and his big question as he was contemplating having to leave his family and his children, he asked me, "Do I believe in guardian angels?" And and the subtext of the question was, "Will my family be protected? Will my family family be cared for and guided?" and Maybe can I be assigned to that task to be able to complete in the next life what I am not going to be able to complete in this one? And, and of course, yes, I do believe in a God who protects. I don't know the mechanics of it. I don't know how it works. But yes, absolutely, I believe in that. And then it popped into my head that when I was in first grade, there a little girl raised her hand to ask the nun a question in Catholic school. You know, in heaven will I get to have my dog? And the nun said something absolutely brilliant. If you want your dog... You'll have your dog. Because in God's presence, there is no felt need. If you need your dog, you'll have your dog. If you need your family protected, they will be protected. And you will know what that means from a perspective that you couldn't possibly know now. And if you don't have a husband or a wife, there's going to be something there that will just obliterate the need for that. And so for us here... How do we know when we are standing in God's presence? How do we know? Because we don't feel a need for anything else. Nothing. There is nothing I could bring into this moment that would make it any better. And anything I did bring in would only make it worse because it would take the focus off the fact that it's already perfect. Because I am here, completely present to God's presence, completely present to your presence. And that's the way it works. This is what Jesus is trying to get across to us. How do we know that we're in God's presence? We're not feeling the need anymore. And when in our lives do we feel no need? When do we have that experience? It's with each other, isn't it? Isn't that when we feel complete fullness? Isn't that when we feel that nothing else needs to be added? No artificial sweeteners to this moment. It's perfect the way it is. 
When we've really loved each other as Jesus loved us, when we follow that new commandment, when we have done what Jesus did, which is to lay ourselves and our needs down, literally laid our lives down for our friends. No greater love, Jesus said, is there than this. And we think of it dying, but it's not dying. It can be. But it can be living in such a way that we lay ourselves down. We lay our needs down. We give everything away in order to be completely connected in this relationship. And when we do that, when we feel that connection, when we feel nothing else that needs to be here to make this moment perfect, we know we are standing on holy ground. We know we're standing in God's presence. We need to see how precious these relationships are. If you go to the hospital and you're realizing that you're seeing your friend possibly for the last time, and I know he was unconscious, but I leaned down and I whispered in his ear the things that I wanted to tell him, and I can only hope that he heard. But to see how precious that relationship has been in ways that maybe I didn't before. You know, the times when he talked too long and I got frustrated and I knew that I needed to be someplace else all comes down to that moment last night where I wish I had another 45-minute conversation with Terry that I can't have now. But couldn't I have seen that then so that I could have really been present and felt not the need to go someplace else or do something else, but just to stand there and listen to him talk about whatever he wanted to talk about? What is it going to take for me to learn to do that then and not when he's on his deathbed? What is it going to take for any of us to be able to do this and see the precious nature of these relationships that are all around us all the time? Yeah. And then finally to figure out that after all our searching, the only thing that makes the emptiness bearable is each other. So I guess Carl Sagan was right, but only because Jesus was right first. Let's pray. Oh, Father. Wow. Thank you for Terry. Thank you for his presence in our lives. Thank you for everything that he gave and tried to give to make our community stronger. Thank you for the care that he put into all of his sponsees and everyone that he helped. Thank you for the example, I guess both good and bad, that he set for us in our time together. But help us to see through times like these that these relationships are just gold and to really consciously with intention turn our face toward them and help us to live them to the full help us to experience these moments of unfelt need so that we know that we're with you and we know that we're really really honoring the gifts that you've given us Father that's what we want more and more and more in our lives so thank you for loving us this way giving us the example so we know how to love in return And never let us forget we can only love it all because you loved us first. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks. Everyone stand.